All right, this is uh, God's word to you today. This is shortly after the accounts of Jesus's birth. And so we have Jesus as a 12-year-old boy here at the Feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. This is Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom, and stature, and in favor, or in grace with God and man. Let's pray. It's our practice here to spend a few moments in silence, and I think it's appropriate to uh, imagine what this scene must have been like for Mary and Joseph in their hysteria. Um, And so I want us to imagine that we may have all sorts of hysteria in in our lives and what Jesus is like in the midst of that, what God is like in the midst of the things that feel totally chaotic and out of control, because that's what we see Jesus doing, even as a little boy. And so let's let's probably spend some moments in silence and then and then pray. Father, we ask that you would be present by your Holy Spirit with us today as we open your word. What we see is that you yourself open the word throughout the course of your life, and that you submitted yourself to not just the Word, but to the institution of the systems in which you were involved in 2,000 years ago, even in all their brokenness. And so we ask, Lord, that as we consider this passage, not only that we would see its, its relevance, its application to our life, but most of all, Lord, that we would see Uh, that you loved us so much that you became a human being and you subjected yourself to all of the fallenness, all of the brokenness that many of us experience in this room right here, right now. And so, Lord, our, our hope is that we would worship you, that we would, like Mary, treasure you in our hearts because you gave us your treasured possession, your son Jesus. And so we come now to you. Father, in Christ's name, amen. So 
I don't know if you're a resolutions person. We were guessing that this in prayer, what percentage of Redeemer are resolutions people. One person, John Martin even said 83, 83 people exactly. And so sounds like a, sounds like a prophetic guess. Um, but I'm assuming even if you're not a resolutions person, you know about the idea of resolutions. We're heading into a new year. This is the beginning of a new season. And so what I want to look at from this passage is Jesus, what he resolved to do throughout the course of his life, even as a little boy. He resolved uh, and made priorities. He resolved on where he was going to be physically present. He had resolutions on, I know this sounds weird, uh, on the, uh, the willingness to cause pain to the people that he loves. And he resolved to, to be humble. And so those are the four things that we're going to look at briefly today. What I do think is very, very important about this passage is that nowhere else in the canon of Scripture do we have a depiction of Jesus in his childhood outside of, his, outside of the birth narratives. And it's very, very intriguing that we don't have any portion of Jesus' life in the canon of Scripture aside from this very one specific story. And if you, uh, lots of theologians have delved deep into this text, especially the last verse in verse 52. But what's, what's also very fascinating is the, the context and the circumstance of the story. In verse 41 through 45, what, what you see is it's a little vignette of what Jesus would have done when his family was in a highly worried and anxious situation. Almost every family that I've known has had this circumstance. I myself was lost at Six Flags. My family lost me. I still have trauma from it. When I was a young boy, they lost me at Six Flags, and we still talk about it around the dinner table many years later. But almost every family that I've ever known has had this experience at some point. You lose a child uh, in a crowd, and you don't know what, what happened to them and how terrifying that can be. And even in a culture where it was more common for children to roam around, just like you see in the text, they just assumed that he was up in front with some of the acquaintances and family members. After two or three days, when you can't find your child, that is tough, okay? That transcends, for parents, that transcends time and culture and space on how worried that makes you, and that's the one story, it's very fascinating, that's the one story we have from Jesus' childhood. And so that's what we're going to look at. Because in the midst of that, even when he was 12, and that's on the cusp of Jewish boys becoming um, into adulthood, he had already had commitments, Jesus' resolve to to his priorities, to his presence, to his pain, and to humility. And so first, the first priority that we see is in verse 46. It says that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. Now, what were the teachers teaching? They were teaching what's called the Torah. They were teaching the Old Testament scriptures, the Word. And there Jesus is in the midst of his parents' hysteria, like studying the book of Numbers, you know, with a bunch of rabbis. Um, 
I had a minister who once repeated almost every single time he got up to teach. He said, you know, the Christian life runs on a four-piston engine. Love God, love neighbor, repent, and believe. And one time, he was describing Christianity to a, to a friend of mine, and he was like kind of talking about it. He's like, you know, Matt, what, what do I always say the Christian life is about? It's about four things. And I, I just went blank. Like, and he had said it so, so many times. And I learned something very, very specific about teachers and how we think we communicate and what we think we're actually like articulating to those who we communicate with. And it's this, that like, it's not so much about the articulation of what we say we believe. That's not what sticks with people. What sticks with people is how they live and how they orient specifically to God's Word. And here's what I do remember. I remember every time he got up to preach, he would say this one line. Every single time he would say, say, God, your Word has been read, and that is sufficient to change us. You don't need me to talk about it. And that's what stuck with me, and that's what stuck with so many others under, under his ministry his priority to Scripture and how he oriented towards it is what mattered. Now, one of my professors would say, if you poked Jesus, what would flow out of him is God's Word. Now, how did he get that way? Even Jesus himself has to do the rigorous work of learning the Word through, through dialogue, through examining it in community. This is part of why at our church we have one-on-one relationships, this is why we have life groups, this is why we have Bible studies, to get in the Word. And oftentimes what I've, what I've noticed over the course of my ministry is that people are really, really insecure about what they know and what they don't know about God's Word. And it's, it's tricky, you know, especially if you feel like you're uh, an infant in your knowledge of Scripture. And here's, here's how I want you to think about it. Um, just like the ocean, an ant and an elephant can swim in the ocean. It's that vast. It's that big. John Calvin himself says that the Bible is like a, a father or a mother talking to an infant. Like, you know, babble. And so even if you, you know, uh, mama, mama, dada, that's what John Calvin says the scriptures are to us as humans. And so what, what I'd encourage you to do is that whether you're an elephant or an ant, just get in the water. Just know that any portion of it is good for your soul. Any amount of it is good for your soul. And it's okay if you just feel like, I don't know where to begin. That's, that's when you get a friend and you say, hey, I would like to explore the Bible. Uh, would you read it with me? Can we dialogue uh, about it? Um, especially if you are, are not a Christian and, and you are interested, it's important to kind of do that in community. Find a friend and ask, hey, can we, can we explore the scriptures together? Um, there are many, many plans of scripture reading out there. Please contact me or contact Jen or contact Adam if you want to be directed to a plan. But one of the most interesting things over the course of 
ministry is that the people that have asked me the most questions about Scripture are our children. Oftentimes, it's when they're around this age, too. When they're around 12, their, their curiosity is peaking, and they're, what they're, tra- they're transitioning into whether they want to believe this or not. And so they have, like, real, real questions. So what Claire does in our church, you know, with the fourth and fifth grade, this very, very important time in the life of a believer or in the life of somebody who's investigating belief. And there um, have been some of the best questions, and as we age, we grow less and less curious about what we perceive to be familiar to us. But Scripture, the way that I want you to think about it is, is that it is really an endless world of discovery. And if you can embrace it with humility, it really is like the portal to the other world. It's like the, the you know, in line which in the wardrobe, it is the wardrobe that gives us access to what God's like in his world. And admitting that we don't understand many things about God's word is okay. Um, the, the simple thing is just, just get in it. Um, put, put your toe in the water. That's what Jesus, he, even as God himself, uh, submitted himself to prioritizing God's word in his life. Secondly, he also prioritized where he spent his time in his embodied presence. Meaning, in the text, Jesus was actually in the temple. Uh, He was physically there. In verse 49, he says, why, he's talking to his mom, he says, why are you looking for me? I Didn't you know, know that I must be in my father's house? And I do think this is something we all need to focus on as we are in the midst of the most highly mobile and remote culture in the world. Your physical presence matters a lot. And not just for the sake of others, but for your own sake. Jesus himself, if you think about this, Jesus himself, who was the one that was worshipped, he prioritized regular embodied worship with God's people. So, uh, let's... I want to I say something very practical. Your, your heart's going to instinctually try to go towards guilt. I'm not thinking about anybody in particular in this room, okay? I'm mainly preaching to myself as well. But let's say you're going out of town, and you have something during the regular worship time. Here's how I want you to think. What would it look like to prioritize physical embodied worship wherever you are? So, for instance, if you got something on Sunday morning, would you be willing to look for a place of worship on Saturday evening or Sunday evening? If you are traveling on Sunday, and we all know that the flights are cheaper on Sunday morning, uh, would you be willing to consider paying more money for a flight later in the evening? See, I'm, saying, I'm trying to get us to think about this. This is a priority for Jesus himself. And it's important for us. It's important for us to be embodied together during worship. Now, um, I, I do want you to imagine that God created you as a rhythmic being 
of work and rest and work and rest and work and rest and where your soul finds the deepest rest, strangely enough, is with the worship of God's embodied people. I know it seems like we're going to get more rest like at the beach or just doing whatever we want, but it's not true, and you know it. You know that your soul finds the deepest rest when you are worshiping in the embodied community of His Son by the Holy Spirit. That there's an exhale that's happening. And that's what you need. Of course the church needs you. Of course the church needs your resources. But, but you, you need to worship because that's where you find rest. And you can't do that over Zoom. You, you can't do that remotely. And so like if you're out of town and, and you're in a particular uh, town anywhere in the world, there's typically a church within blocks of you. Go to it. Even if you don't know the people, even if you don't know the denomination, go to the embodied people of God and worship for your own sake, for the rest of your soul. Jesus does that. Jesus, the the God-man, prioritized that. And so as you think about 2024, I want you to think about, okay, how do I, in an embodied way, worship God with God's people? Where do you want to focus your presence this year? Maybe at the expense of disappointing and causing pain to people. Where Where do you want to focus your physical presence this year? Meaning to say yes to God will sometimes mean saying no to others and where others expect you to be. That's what's happening in our text. Jesus is upsetting his mom, which is real hard to do, by the way. Like, have, have y'all noticed that as you get older? Like, just to, to, you know, live with the reality that your mom's, like, disappointed in you, you know? Like, that's hard, And Jesus does that for the sake of embodied worship in the temple. And that's the other resolution that Jesus has made. And this is the hard one. He's willing to cause pain. He's willing to cause pain to those whom he loves most. Look at Mary's response to Jesus in verse 48. It's like the classic worried parents' response, okay? She says, Son, your father and I have been looking for you. And you've caused us great pain. We've been worried sick. That's what we'd say in the South. You scared the stew out of me. (laughs) And that's not the part that I really want to hone in on. I want to hone in on Jesus' response. He says, Mom... Why are y'all looking for me? I, I was in my father's house. You think about the trickery of that. Your father and I have been looking for you. And he says, I was in my father's house. You know, he's, he's rebuking his mom. He's asking her, he's asking her to own what's going, it's so genius, you guys. If you just think about this text, He's asking her to own what's going on inside of her. And that what goes on inside of her is not going to dictate what he does. And he does not apologize. 
He doesn't say, Mom, thanks so much for looking for me and searching for me everywhere. You must have been so worried. That's what Mary and Joseph would have liked to have heard, right? But he goes deeper, and what he's saying, he's saying, Mom, I have prioritized my presence not based around the avoidance of upsetting you. But then he does one of the most remarkable things in all of Scripture, I think, even after they don't understand in verse 50. Verse 51 says, he went back, look at the text, he went back to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. He obeys the fifth commandment, even when his parents didn't deserve it. (laughs) And in three short verses, Jesus shows us how to resolve to obey without becoming bitter or prideful. And that's very hard. The word submissive literally means to place yourself under something. And we think, but he's, you know, he's God. Like, he shouldn't have to submit to anyone. And what he's showing us is how to differ from others while still remaining connected to them relationally. And I cannot tell you how important that is. He's showing us that you cannot worship God and dismiss your relationships, especially the ones that are your core relationships. And this speaks to the heart of our culture today and one of the main ways that our community not, not, and culture needs to grow, not just locally, but nationally. There's been, a, over the past three years, there's been a resurgence of a discovery of this guy named, a rediscovery of this guy named Edwin Friedman, who wrote this wonderful book called The Failure of Nerve, And his big thing is learning how to lead in a non-anxious way through the practice of differentiation. So knowing where you end and another person begins so that their anxiety doesn't affect the way that you lead or the way that you are around them. You know where yourself begins and where they begin. And what you see Jesus doing is being the perfect, non-anxious presence in the midst of a highly anxious system called his family and called the temple, the institution of the church in that day. Now, what he was doing is that he was embodying what God is like when human beings are out of control. And yet, It wasn't enough. And so here's my question, the one that I'm working through right now. What do we do when being a non-anxious presence isn't enough? What do we do when our resolutions don't help, don't help in the way that we hope that they would help? When they don't bring resolve? Or change? What do we do? I mean, you see this in the life of Jesus. You know, he's sleeping in the boat in the midst of the storm. Did that make the disciples any less anxious? What do we do? When Jesus, what Jesus is doing when he goes back and he submits to his own failed family system, when he submits himself to the corrupt institutions of his day, which is what the temple was, 
when he prioritized God and he practiced being in the embodied presence of God with God's people, when he feared God above all others, there was still another resolution that only he could fulfill. Which is the center of the world, according to God. That through his very body, he was uniting heaven back to earth through the unloading of God's wrath. And we don't think that that's the center of healing, but it is. Back to the, back to the story. Think about what's actually going on. Being separate from your own family members. It is truly a horror. The reason why is because we love our family members. We don't want to be separate from our family members. We don't want to be separate from people that we love. And so we can't imagine our lives without them. And even when we do, if we think we've lost, you, you know what they were feeling. They thought it was dead. You ever gone, you ever, somebody ever gone missing for two days? What do you think? And it begins to unravel their lives. And what Jesus is showing them is that there would come a time when he himself would look for his dad, his father. And he would search and search and search, says in the sky, he was looking out, crying out for his own dad, only to realize that his dad had left him. And you may feel like God has abandoned you in so many ways. Isn't that the center? That God's left you? Isn't that what we fear? That things will unravel. And the point of the gospel is for God to look at you in the face of Jesus Christ and say, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to lose a family member, to be the lost family member. When you see the incarnate God-man experiencing all that you have ever known of the pain of this world and far more, what begins to happen is that he grows in your heart. The largeness of Jesus Christ grows in your heart. That he gets more wise in your eye. The eyes of your heart, Paul says, he gets stronger. His, stat, his stature grows. And he grows in grace. Verse 52. And at that point, this is why Christianity is, it really is different than anything else in the world your resolutions at that point shift your focus away from yourself and onto Him. They, they, you resolve to, I mean, you're doing what Mary's doing. You're pondering Him in your heart. That's where resolutions should lead you to in the Christian framework of the gospel. You stop worrying about how you're doing. <laughs> you stop worrying about how your family's doing. You stop worrying about how the institutions are doing because you know that they're all corrupt and you're part of that corruption. We all are. And what you begin to do is that when you shift your focus on Jesus, 
you are, you are shifting your focus to something that cannot be taken away from you. Something solid. This God who gave up His most treasured possession to get you, and what you're seeing is the depth of the meaning of Christmas, the implication of Christmas, that Jesus was embracing the humility of what it means to be a human being with all of its brokenness. Verse 52, I just want to read it. This is caused theologians so much heartache. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor or great. That word is grace with God and humankind. Now, um, does that sound strange to you? It sounds strange to me. I mean, if he's God, how can you increase in something? How can the perfect ruler of the universe grow in anything? How can the creator of wisdom grow in wisdom? How the creator of grace grow in grace? What's he doing? Well, he's making himself knowable to us. He's making himself knowable to us, right? And so, there's this pastor who has a, uh, a Korean mother, South Korean mother, who is 100 years old and has dementia. He's a pastor in Maryland. And oftentimes he'll go back and, and visit his, his mom. Well, anyways, he came back from Korea after a visit from his mom. And he, he was older, but he had dyed his hair jet black and cut it into like a really younger man's looking haircut. And all the other people on staff at the church were just like, are you having like a midlife crisis or something? Um, and he said, actually, no, uh, my, my mother, she, she has dementia. And I thought that maybe if I cut my hair to the way that it looked about 30 years ago, that she would recognize me. And he said, it actually worked. And that's what Jesus has done with us. That he's met, God has made himself recognizable to us when we're in the fog of sin. He had to lower himself. He had to take on a form and subject himself to the process of our sickness. Now, I'm, I'm all for resolutions. We'll close up here. I, I really do. I'm like super goal-oriented. I want to get things done. I want to reach the task, you know. Our main goal this year is to plant a church, and we're going to pray for that. We're going to give a lot of resources to that. We're going to support Adam and all the people that want to be a part of that plan as much as we can. And that's good. All of the things that we want to accomplish in 2024 are good. But everything, you guys, everything must point back to Christ. All of our instincts, all of our strivings, it's about him. It's, it's about what we say all the time here in our church is that we are being changed by the gospel, that Jesus himself is the one that changes us. It's not about us gearing up to change for Jesus. We realize like he's the one that's on an outside force, comes in, and then begins to activate our wills away from self-improvement and towards a whole new self entirely. And, and that's how you know when, when it's the gospel driving your resolutions, the word it feels like food instead of a chore. Um, embodied worship is actually like enlivening to you as opposed to feeling dead and pointless. 
when, uh, when you're willing to disappoint people but still stay connected to them? You know the gospel is at work then, but most of all, when your resolutions cause you to treasure Jesus more. And as C.S. Lewis would say, to, to not think less of yourself, but just to simply think of yourself less. Meaning your resolutions gradually draw you to Jesus' resolution, to love you to the end. That's the whole point. His steadfast love will endure forever. Not your obedience, not your disobedience. It's his steadfast love through you that is eternal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this year. We thank you for all of the heartaches, for all of the pain, for all of the work and all of the rest. We thank you for all of the births. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the deaths. And even in the midst of imagining what a life will be like without death, even imagining what a life will be like where we don't need to make resolutions because we are uh, with you, pondering you, being at one with creation and each other. Um, Lord, we ask that we would like Mary today, even in the midst of broken institutions, of broken families and broken relationships, that we would simply ponder you in our hearts, that we would resolve to do that in this moment as we close out this year. In Christ's name, amen.